Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Let's welcome our guest moderator, Kelly Hoey from Women Innovate Mobile, and our guest panelists. I say you brave entrepreneurs who came out in this cold weather. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's great to see you. Um, and I'm really excited to have um, these guys um, out here tonight as well, got them to brave the, uh, the weather. So tonight uh, we have three early stage investors who are investing in, in tech here in New York and elsewhere. Let me get this all going here. Um, I'm going to start in the middle with um, Jerry. So Jerry is a veteran um, investor. He's been doing this for, well, do you want me to give away how long you've been doing this for? 15? 15 years, 15 years um, investing. So Jerry, how does a nice guy who graduates with an engineering degree, goes to IBM, start investing in ad tech? Um, what happened to you? It was completely <laughs> accidental, actually. Uh, I, 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 even, I don't even know how to answer that question. I, I don't think anybody becomes an investor on purpose. I don't, think there's that, I don't think that's available to people. Uh, I went to work for Omnicom, which is one of the largest holding companies uh, of advertising agencies in the world from Prodigy. Does, does anybody remember Prodigy? A few heads nodding. Some of us remember Prodigy. It's, it's an age test. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and they, they, needed, they, were, they wanted to buy advertise, interactive advertising companies, but none of the good ones wanted to sell at the time. This was in 96 uh, because they knew that they were growing so fast that selling would be a bad idea. So we started investing instead. So that's how I got started. Thank you. Um, I'm going to jump down the end to uh, Nihal. You can hear me under those flaps. Good stuff. So Nihal, um, I want to say noted expert in uh, emerging adoption of mobile. You've been investing in mobile for what now? You've had started five companies. Uh, Any expert investing? Seven years ago, I guess. Yep. Was it a trend then? Was it trendy to invest in mobile? I mean, it sounds so funny now to say investing in mobile. It's like, who's not investing in mobile? Yeah, it was not. Uh, I think every year, I founded my first mobile company in 1999, and every year we would say, next year is the year of mobile. And we've been saying that for <laughs> 13 years now. Yep. Uh, but I think it's okay to say that it's, it's the year of mobile, finally. This, finally, this is, well, what was it I read today that 65% of emails are now read on mobile? So maybe finally, you know, this is the year for mobile. <laughs> year of the horse coming up, year of mobile, I don't know, we'll get, we'll get it all. Um, and right next to me, uh, Namdi. Yeah. So you're jumping, you're just like, oh, what is she gonna ask? Okay, so. Extensive experience as a venture capitalist and an angel investor, 20 yeah. venture investments, but you've been at the late stage and you've now coming down to the dark side or the light side. Well, I don't know what it is. <laughs> I am coming to the dark side. I'm excited about that. Now, I want to work more closely with entrepreneurs and I feel like it's easier to do that at the early stage. I also feel like there are great opportunities uh, here in New York uh, in particular. I want to work more, more closely with entrepreneurs. In particular, a more broad set of entrepreneurs, so more women, uh, more diverse set of entrepreneurs. I feel like it's easier to do that at the early stage. Uh, so that's the primary rationale. Well, you know, you and I have that in common in terms of <laughs> investing early, you yeah. know, in diversity so that, you know, your former partners in Insight can actually see some diverse <laughs> entrepreneurs. They'd probably like that. <laughs> 
<laughs> we'll make sure that they like that. Yeah. Um, I actually want to go, and Jerry and I talked about this before, um, besides me teasing him on um, the date of his last blog post, but your last um, blog post on Reaction Wheel, you had some really great graphs on what investors were looking at at different stages and their appetite in the market. Can you cast your mind? Can you can you talk about that for a second? Well, first I want to say that only my blog posts that have pictures get read. <laughs> which, I, and so I, it was. I, I, I have was doing my research. It wasn't just looking for your blog posts with pictures. I was doing my research. No, no, I mean by everybody, not just you. Um, so if you write a blog, make sure you have pictures in it. I invest. I have invested mainly in my investing life in ad tech, so about half of my investments over the past 15 years have been some sort of interactive advertising technology. Uh, but I haven't made an investment in an ad tech company in about three years. So the blog post and, and the, the talk that it came out of was exploring the reasons why I hadn't. Um, and I'm not sure exactly what the question is, but is it... It's on the pictures. The words were good, but it was really the pictures. No, you had a really great... Um, series of graphs on what an early stage investor was looking for in terms of entering a market, what at the, you know, kind of series A, B, and then what late stage investors in terms of that whole curve um, with investment. And I just think it really kind of clarified why, you know, you would go into the market and what you're looking for in an early stage um, and sort of clarifying when an entrepreneur should approach you guys as early stage investors versus someone with an idea that really is kind of laid on a curve. Okay. Yeah. So, well, before we were Kelly and I were talking before um, Nihal and Namdi got here, and and uh, slagging them. She she said, "Oh yeah, well, Namdi came from Insight, where he was doing later stage and went to early stage." And I said, "Wow, that's that's so <laughs> stupid. Uh, this is like the worst time in the world to be investing in early stage." <laughs> and <laughs> See, you should have. And of course, I, I only invest in early stage. <laughs> Because I don't have enough money to invest later stage, so, so you, sh you should go later. I, I would if I had the money. It's. I think the 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 point I was trying to make in the yeah. blog post was that you have you have some sort of core innovation which starts to get brought into industries, right? So you bring this innovation into some sort of customer set and, and using it to make their lives better. Uh, the innovations that I had been investing in four or five years ago, uh, a lot of the, the big data, the real time data, the real time interaction um, that people are now using in in the advertising world is not new anymore. So at least in the advertising world, there's not a lot of new opportunities. The, 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 the problem set has become exhausted. So it, it makes sense to be investing in the companies which have started a few years ago and have proven that they are the, going to be the winners or have shown that they may be the winners. But if you're, going, if you're starting a company in that sector now, you're probably competing with a dozen people who started two years before you, um, which means either that you're going to have a hard time competing with them or that they didn't succeed and it may not be the opportunity you think it is. Or you may actually be a much, much better company than they are and beat them, but that's a tough thing to bet on when you're an early stage venture capitalist. I see Nihal nodding down at the end. Now, you are founder of Local Response. You've recently handed over the CEO reins. Thoughts on that segment of the market and and as I'm going to say, sort of switching your hats from being a founder to being an investor and, and thinking about it? I think uh, <clears throat> for us, you know, we're also very early, but um, I find that early stage investing is almost like being a very scalable founder. You know, we invest extremely early, so um, we started even pre-product and just around teams. 
uh, now with our second fund, we're post-product but still pre-traction. And we have about 50 investments, all, all mobile first, at the fund, which is called ENIAC. By the way, named after the world's first computer. Takes up this whole floor, and we thought it'd be ironic calling a mobile fund ENIAC because that <laughs> phone is a trillion times you know, more powerful than, than the original ENIAC. But um, you know, the things we look for are those, those founding qualities, which is it's all about the team and the opportunity. Um, and those are often, those are really the only signals, very early stage, but those are often the things that really make, make the difference, right? And, and as an entrepreneur, you, you understand that the business plan that you start with is never the business plan you finish with, right? There's, there's twists and turns, there's pivots, there's all types of you know, weird shit that happens. Can you say, can you swear on iTunes? Well, I guess we just did. Well, you know, we can. We're getting a nod and a thumbs up. So you can. That's great shit. So, <laughs> um, so you know, the, I guess my this point is... This is not like Omaha. There is no donation being made to anything every time you swear. Okay, I just want awesome. you to know that. Awesome. It's Iowa, by the way. So fuck off. No. Um, <laughs> but I was born in Iowa. But... Uh, so, so my point is, you know, it's all about the team <laughs> at, at our stage because this team has to be able to persist. They have to have the tenacity to make it through. You know, most often it's really about timing and and persistence and tenacity that that you know are the core factors to success of these businesses. And I experienced that as an entrepreneur so many times. That's what we look for in, in, well, starting, in investments. Starting five companies, and you know, I mean, I'm read with you standing in Central Park, phoning your investors saying, making a little change with local response. So, I mean, you've lived it, you breathed it. So, um, so Namdi, let's go back to you. Yeah. Now that you're like, oh, please, no, why did I agree to do this? Um, I'm enjoying this. <laughs> yeah, because I've been giving the other guys a bad time. That's I think I why. should start swearing like the hell. <laughs> We had Gary V up here, so you know we, we we've got a we've got a number that we have to reach to surpass him. Yeah, <laughs> this could take a while. Um, what are you What are you looking for now? You've been, I mean, yeah. you've been doing some angel investing. Is there a difference that you see in the entrepreneurs that you were investing in later stage, or you know, what are you trying to? What are you hoping? Like, who are you investing in now? What are yeah, you looking yeah, for, yeah. though? And, and, and what are you kind of looking at them thinking, okay, if I'm going to get them to yeah. where I would have invested in them in, in insight, well, how do I have to be, like, what are those factors I have to be looking for? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I think there's certain commonalities you look for across stages. I think you want to see passion for the product and the business. You want to see a big market opportunity. You want to see uh, you know, somebody who identified a pain point and is trying to solve that pain point. I think there are a lot of commonalities I think if I think about the growth stage uh, entrepreneurs I invested in, you know, usually when they get to the growth stage, more, much more is proven out. So a lot of the risk is more execution risk. It's, you know, how do you get from a $20 million company to a $100 million company? So the risk is, to an extent, uh, not fully eliminated, but partially eliminated. So part of it is you're working with them to, you know, fulfill those, you know, late stage aspirations, but there's not as much of the risk there. I think, and, and I think to the, these guys would probably say, look, you know, why take on that much risk? But I think that's also the excitement. I think um, entrepreneurs who are really just starting businesses, they're really putting themselves out there. I think they want also to see an investor that's putting himself or herself out there and putting, them, putting himself in their shoes. So I think part of the, I think when I talk to the entrepreneurs I've invested in so far, they kind of like the fact that I'm taking a little bit of a risk because they feel like 
maybe identify a little bit with what they're going through. Oh, Mr. Um, Cozy, late stage investors <laughs> finally <laughs> getting no, risky. But, <laughs> no, but, I, but I, I think it's also, I think, look, I think early stage entrepreneurs are, they, they are taking risk. And I think what I'd like to do is find entrepreneurs who have identified markets um, and they may be not the markets that everybody's looking at. You know, one of my entrepreneurs is here in the audience, uh, Cynthia Seamus. Uh, she started a company called Abbey Post. Uh, it's a made-to-measure uh, women's apparel company focusing on plus size. That's a market, in my view, that's very, it's underserved. There's a huge pain point there. She's going after it. And I think that's really interesting. You know, I think it's a fascinating, her story is a fascinating one. And, and she's I a kick-ass entrepreneur. She's a great entrepreneur. It's a big market. And for some reason, people really aren't going after it. And for me, there are certain, there are certain markets where you just look and say, why is there not investment going into that? And in my view, it's a, I don't know if you call it an inefficiency or, or whatever it is, but you won't see those businesses at the growth stage, but you will see them at the early stage. So those are some of the reasons why I feel like there's a little bit of an opportunity to invest in companies that are maybe just not the norm of what you know, early stage investors are doing. I like it. <laughs> so Nihal, because I, Jerry and I had a conversation in the back that I've mentioned before that there's a point that he made that I really want to get to. But um, Nihal, you have, in stuff that I was reading, talked about the four laps of startups. And as someone who has started five companies, you probably know those four runs around the track better than anyone else. Can you just give, it, give your, yeah. your, four, your four laps? So four laps. So first is, first can take the longest uh, product market fit. And in the last company I started, Local Response, it actually started as a consumer company called Buzzed. In 2007, it was kind of a precursor to Foursquare. 2007, pre-iPhone, Android, all mobile web, and that failed, right? We never had product market fit. And so we pivoted to Local Response and threw a bunch of different business models at the wall. One was serving SMBs, um, essentially a marketing tool that takes advantage of check-ins and people posting public things, and that didn't work. And so we finally figured out that big kind of upper funnel brands uh, really want this stuff and uh, brought on an amazing team to, to get there. And I think it took us probably six years from founding the company to have that product market fit. That was lap one. Lap two is getting funding Right Can after we just go back to the fact it was six years to lap one? Just I want to repeat that. Six just years. Yeah. Six years. Okay. It took six yeah. years. I mean, I think a startup is is uh it's really a ten year commitment. I mean, that's what we tell entrepreneurs. Like this is not an Instagram. And by the way, Instagram wasn't an Instagram. All right, before Instagram there was bourbon and Kevin was working on Instagram his whole life, essentially. And after he launched Instagram, finally after a pivot from bourbon Fine, he got bought by Facebook for a billion dollars 18 months after, but it's still eight to nine years of his life, right, that he's been working on that problem. Um, same with Dennis Crowley at Foursquare, right? He started with um, Dodgeball, right. right? And that was over 10 years ago, right? So anyway, it's, it's really a 10-year commitment. And so six years, uh, product market fit, and then second lap is getting funded, right? Showing investors that, hey, there's some traction here. We have uh, a repeatable business model. We have consumers that are not just churning, they're coming back and using the product, whatever it might be. Third lap is, is, uh, is, is making, making money, monetizing your service, right? Which we like is, that lap. We, we like, like that lap, which is if you're consumer facing, it's uh, monetizing through advertisers or a subscription. If it's 
B2B, it's monetizing through SaaS or whatever the B2B business model might be. And then fourth lap is figuring out how to, how to get to the next step. Do you sell your company? Do you raise a Series B? And then kind of start the cycle over again to a certain extent. So those are kind of how I used to think about it. I think I might have changed my view a little bit. Like I said, it's more like 100,000 laps, but maybe those are the four categories that I would put stages of business in. And, and kind of go through them with from, from launch and every time you to raise money, you get to go through the laps again. Exactly. It's a highly recursive, and <laughs> tiring, and exhausting, pro but fun process. I think we have to be slightly wired in a strange way to kind of get off on all this. But in terms of all of those um, ideas and why you launch something and why you find product market fit. You know, Jerry, when you and I were talking in the back, you're now making your first angel investment in how many years? Well, no. An ad tech angel investment. Ad tech, yeah, in yeah. about three years, yeah. In about three years. And you and I were talking in terms of, you know, uh, it's cheaper to start a company, um, but are we seeing the big ideas that get you excited? No, actually, I think that the fact that it's cheaper to start a company and that there's more money being thrown at the seed stage means that people are, the, the bar is lower, right? And even people who could start world-changing companies decide to start companies which are just smaller ideas, uh, a lot of people. So uh, in, in ad tech especially, people come in with minor changes to what's already being done. Um, you know, and, and I always tell people that I, I don't invest in better, right? I invest in different. If you come in with a better this or a better that, that's not interesting to me. I want you to do something completely different. And I think that's, um, I mean, if you look around at companies that are successful, very few of them came in and said, you know, I'm going to do this a little bit better. And, and the people who did come in and, and say they're going to do it a little bit better were the ones who were either people who've run businesses before and been successful. They come in, they bring in $30 million of venture money, um, and they go and build a product, and they know it's going to work because the market's already there, uh, and they know they have the team that can do it. But if you're a first-time entrepreneur, you need to go in with something different. Otherwise, you can't walk into your customers and say, hey, this is 10% better than what you're doing now. The, the customer is going to say, well, all right, but what we're doing now, we like, right? So we like it. It works. And I'm not going to take a risk on what you're doing because it's a little bit better. Now, if you walk in and you say, look, you know, what you're doing now is great, but this is completely different and it might work. They'll say, you know what? All right, let me try it. Some of them will. You're much more positive than you were in the back. <laughs> I'm a positive person. I'm an optimist. Not optimist. We have to be optimistic. Otherwise, you know, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be as uh, approachable and pleasant as the weather today. Um, no, you know, I, I actually, I really, I, I am optimistic. And I, I, uh, I entrepreneurs come to me with, with ideas. And, I, and one of the things I oft, often do, almost always do, is say, you know what? That's a good idea. How could it be a bigger idea? Right? So... You know, I teach a class at Columbia on entrepreneurship, and my students will say, all right, well, we've, we're going to have an app that lets you share the cost of a pitcher of beer between you and your friends. And I think this is a big problem for them, right? They're solving a problem, which is, you know, gnaws at them every night. <laughs> Hopefully not every night, but all the time. And, and I say, all right, that's, that's interesting. Um, but, you know, what you're doing, isn't there a bigger idea that's behind you sharing the cost of a pitcher of beer? I mean, couldn't you actually have, you're, you're trying to build a mobile payment system. Right? So there's a much, much bigger idea be around this small idea that you have. Um, and, and I think the, the idea, you know, they say, well, mobile payments, that's, that's kind of intimidating. So you know what, look, you know, you, you shoot for the moon, you land on the roof, right? 
So if you're trying to build a gigantic company and you fail, well, you've built a medium-sized company, right? If you're trying to build a small company and you fail, then you've got nothing. Right. So why you not try to build route. a gigantic company? Yeah, you, yeah exactly. Um, Nihal, you're, you're nodding. You know, and someone who's been, you know, you're what? You're just like, yeah, I agree. No, my hat nods automatically. <laughs> <laughs> it's, your, it's a wearable, is it? It's, sense, it's sensing your thoughts and just nodding on behalf for you. But um, I think I'd add be? one thing. I think Jerry makes a good point. The one thing I would add, though, is that I think the fact that it may take less capital to start a company today, in a sense, makes it easier for a broader set of people to do that. I've done a lot of investing internationally uh, in my career, and what I've found is that a lot of times entrepreneurs in Latin America and Europe and, and Asia Oftentimes, they won't have the startup capital uh, that you have in the U.S. There aren't as many early-stage funds, but at the same time, you don't need as much capital to start a software company, to start an e-commerce company. So it, in a sense, it may make the bar a little bit lower, but on the other hand, it kind of broadens out the number of people who can start businesses, which in my view is, is a good thing. Right. Um, so it, there's, there's positives and negatives there. Oh, I totally think it's a good thing. But I think with the same amount of capital that you're using to start your picture-sharing app, yep. you can start an online bank. Right. It's sure. It it doesn't. I, I funded an online bank, and we funded them with probably less money than it would cost to build an iPhone app. So why not think big? Right. Mm -hmm. This is like this is the golden opportunity for people to say, well, I can raise two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. That's all I can raise. Should I build something really small, or yeah. should I build something really big? Because I can build either. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. That's a valid point. And the prospects of success, you know, in either way, you got to swing for the fences. I like guess. You know, we don't need to go into the stats, the number of companies succeed yeah. and all the rest of it. Sure. But this is a good um, point to say, because the answer, of course, is everyone needs money. But who really needs to go and raise money? And at what point should a founder go and raise money? Because some of the conversation that we've had, you know, I want to say go down to Nihal, you know, as you say about Dennis Crowley um, and these building these companies for 10 years. and But all we see is an Instagram exit after 18 months. And I think there is this sort of in some ways a bill of goods we've sold entrepreneurs that you have an idea, somebody else funds it, you know, this is the way the world works, which isn't really the case. So wh when would you say to an entrepreneur, now, you, now because of this idea or now because of this timing, you need to get money to make this happen? Yeah, I think back to my analogy, it's kind of after you have, you know, succeeded at that first lap, after that product market fit. and. We've seen so many entrepreneurs that take in way too much capital early on, and these are those brilliant, you know, flare up, flame out stories in in TechCrunch that you read. You know, this entrepreneur raised fifty million dollars and at this crazy valuation, and they're they're too big for their britches. I think at that point, you know, and and that really makes a difference in how the entrepreneur thinks and acts. And you know, we really look for entrepreneurs that are that are very scrappy, at at the early stage. Um, you know, you only pay yourselves a salary where you can, um, you barely cover your costs, right? You're upside. Yeah, so there's something about the entrepreneur living better than the investor that really just, yeah, yeah. anyway, yeah. yes. <laughs> you know, you, as an entrepreneur, you cover your costs barely and your upside is in obviously this equity of this amazing company you're going to build, right? And that's a big red flag for us when we look at companies with like crazy budgets devoted to their team, to their management team. We're like, uh, -uh not at early stage. Not when you're generating, not generating revenue, especially not EBITDA, right? And so um, I think scrappy is really good, really important. We want our entrepreneurs, and entrepreneurs should be hustling all the time. 
This is not a nine to five gig. This is a 24 seven gig. Um, yeah, I think you know the, the other the flip side of that question is I think do people need to raise money or not? And I, I was on the phone with an entrepreneur yesterday who was telling me about it. he's built this technology. It works. He's got two customers who are paying his bills, and he said, "Do you think I can raise money?" And I said, "Yeah, I think you can raise money. I think you know you've got a product. You're, you've got customer attraction. People seem to like the product a lot. You can definitely raise money." He said, "Great. What would I use it for?" <laughs> I said, "Okay, hold on a second. Why why are we on the phone, right? It's, I, I don't it's, I don't think you should raise money so that you can spend it." Right. right, you should raise money so that you can invest it in your in your own business. Right, you're you're your own venture capitalist inside your business. So I'm going to take this money. I'm going to hire salespeople, or I'm going to hire engineers to make the product better, or or something. Like you need to know what the money's for. And if you don't have a use for the money, you shouldn't take it because, I mean, if you take my money, now I'm your partner. Right, and <laughs> that, that smile I, when you said I that. am right. We're we're now partners in your business. And then if you know, I mean, one of the reasons you go and become an entrepreneur is so you don't have to work for anybody else. But uh, you know, if you've taken my money, then you, know, you now have an obligation to me in a, in a certain way. And don't do that if you don't have to. Namda, you were, you were nodding and shaking. You're not wearing a hat that's got sensors in it that's shaking your head on your behalf. <laughs> no, I think these guys make great points. I like the scrappiness point uh, from Nahal. I think you want somebody who's willing to take that risk and hustle and kind of, you know, um, I, I love to see that, if, especially if they're putting their own money up. It makes you think like, uh, if you put your money behind it, it's going to do well. So great points there, and I think you make good points too. I don't have much to add to that. Okay. Well, we'll, 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 we'll move on. Um, so there's all, you know, talked about TechCrunch, all the discussions in the press, you know, Silicon Valley versus Silicon Alley, you know, what's going on. What right now that's going on in New York in the tech scene, even if you're not investing in it, what do you think is interesting? Um, and what do you think is an advantage for New York as a hub for technology um, and for startup? I, you know, so I've been investing in New York since 1996, and I would say that the biggest thing that has changed in New York is the amount of talent in New York. The, the people who can build companies is exponentially greater. It, it's amazing. Just raw tech talent? Not just tech talent, but uh, business talent, both. I uh, started my second company in San Francisco in 2001. I didn't move here until 2006. I remember I moved to New York in 06, and I'd introduce myself as an entrepreneur, and folks would be like, I'm sorry, let me buy you lunch. <laughs> we like, still like it when they say that, I was though. like, what do you mean? I'm an, in San Francisco, you introduce yourself as an entrepreneur. They're like, let me get your autograph, right? It's a very, a very different mentality. And We're moving. That's it. We're moving. And uh, I think in the past four years, things have dramatically, past three years, things have dramatically changed in New York. Obviously, the few financial adjustments, uh, folks that graduating top schools can't get those jobs in the financial sector, right? So tech is being able to attract that talent. Um, obviously, everything that Bloomberg and de Blasio is continuing uh, in terms of um, all the progress in tech and the, and not only the subsidies but the the um, the attention right obviously we have a tech campus right Cornell is coming to Roosevelt Island they're at Google, in Google now obviously the Google building everything that's happening right it's, a, it's been a dramatic culture shift where it's now cool 
to be an entrepreneur. And I think once the culture is officially shifted, then that's when you have a real ecosystem. And so I think New York is still a distant second from San Francisco, but it is a second. We beat Boston pretty bad. Yes. Um, we yes. like doing that. Sports, yes. tech, <laughs> you uh, name it. We like to although, beat Although, yeah, I think Boston wins in sports. But, um, <laughs> you know, so, so, so we're doing a lot better, you know, than we used to. I think from our perspective, the verticals, you know, J Jerry mentioned he's been investing for a while. I think ad tech was born here uh, and is doing great, obviously. This is where Madison Avenue lives and breathes. This is where the revenue is. Uh, I think there's been a lot of successful ed tech. Um, you know, fintech, of course, because of the finance. I think those are three verticals that will always be true to New York. We don't have like the blue sky, like smoke pot and create Twitter people though, right? Or Facebook or Pinterest. Um, because I feel like New York is kind of more where the rubber meets the road. And this is where we like to generate revenue almost a little bit too early so we can never make these huge businesses, right? Like Nest was sold, right, for $3.2 billion after two and a half years of founding. And Silicon Valley was like, oh yeah, you know, Nest just sold for $3.2 billion, cool. And the next day it was something else. If that happened in New York, we'd be talking about it for years. Oh, we'd have a ticker tape parade at this yeah. point. We'd have a ticker tape parade, yeah, exactly. Ticker tape Nest, but they, you know, uh, I think the largest acquisition in New York's what, been double click, right? Uh, That's probably right. A little bit over two billion, right? So, we still have a ways to go to right. think really big. I think we're we're getting there. We still have a little ways to go. Yeah, and I think your 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 point that you know, have we had the big audacious, you know, industry or or sector creating type ideas yet? And that's that's sort of interesting to sort of think about is when we'll have that. Namdi, thoughts on New York and where we're um, at? Yeah, no, I think. To Nahal's point, I think the whole ecosystem is evolving. I think there, there's more capital being invested in companies. I think last year there was $3 billion put into New York startups, um, which I think is an all-time high. Um, so there are more funds putting money in. I think they're the sectors that everybody expects, ad tech, e-commerce, but there's increasing investment in software companies. So there haven't been those kind of world-changing businesses yet, but also on the exit side, there are bigger exits. So my old firm, Insight, uh, was an investor in Shutterstock, which is an online stock photography marketplace which went public and had a great IPO and there are more of those types of stories for New York companies so I think entrepreneurs see those stories and say look I don't have to go out to Silicon Valley to start a business I think there's more of that I can raise money I can build a business I can exit um, and do it all here so it's all positive. Um, I, I actually yeah. had a company that I invested in that was in Boulder Colorado. And Speaking of pot. Yeah. <laughs> when they when they were raising their Series A, they were raising it from a Silicon Valley venture capitalist, and the, they said they came back and said, "All right, well, the Silicon Valley venture capitalist told us that we couldn't be in Boulder; we had to move." I said, "All right, so you're moving to Silicon Valley?" He said, "No, they told us to move to New York because they said we they wouldn't wouldn't be able to compete for talent in Silicon Valley because there's too much demand, and, and because they're they're an ad tech company, and Madison Avenue is here, right? Uh, there's you know there's no advertising, nobody advertises in Silicon Valley, right?" I mean, right. Besides Apple. Right. Right. No, in terms of you, you sort of thinking of the synergies that you need in terms of industry or customers or anything else. What do you think we'll see in New York this year? I know what we think. I think we need to see, but will we, will we see some of those big exits? Oh, exits? I think we're going to see some IPOs. Yeah, that's, you know, in terms yeah, of I think that exit from our early stage investment. Yeah, but, yeah. I, I think there's several companies that are teed up that could go public this year. 
Predictions on numbers of them? Come on. That, that's Come a fool's on. game. <laughs> Go to Reaction Wheel, read his old blog post. <laughs> it was in November. I can give you a bad time about that. Um, yeah, no, it just seems to me that there are a few companies that are teeing up for it. And, and I think it's one of those things we need to see in New York. We need to see... Um, and I'm glad you said distant second. We need to see those exits. We need to see that wash cycle of those entrepreneurs starting new companies, becoming investors. That you know, I'm going to say the wash cycle that clearly Silicon Valley has had for you know 30 years before the rest of us started jumping, really jumping in the game. So um, let's go back to raising capital for a second. Um, advice, because. You know, I get people all the time who come up to me and then like, I need an angel, I need a whatever. Advice for entrepreneurs on how they start the capital raising process, assuming they really do need to raise capital. I always say, you know, when you ask for capital, when you ask for investment, you get advice. When you ask for advice, you get capital, right? And so uh, we always coach entrepreneurs, you know, and also if you're a good entrepreneur and you have conviction, you can pretty much get capital now, especially f from a lot of different places, right? You have AngelList and you have um, Kickstarter and you have a ton of you know, new angels that are unsophisticated that have traditionally been investing in real estate um, or the stock market and now they wanna invest in startups. That's a cool thing to do. So as a persistent, diligent entrepreneur, you can get money from anywhere. So focus on um, not just the check, but focus on who's really going to accelerate your business through their network, through their relationships, through their name, through their brand, um, and focus on getting advice from those people, right? Um, we have so many entrepreneurs, first-time entrepreneurs coming to our office, and how do I raise money? Okay, there's this thing called Twitter. You have like 20 people that you love, that you follow. Why don't you go nuts and tweet at them until you get a meeting? And guaranteed, at, at the 100th tweet or 101st tweet, they'll give you a meeting. They'll say, stop fucking tweeting at me, right? <laughs> and, Please don't do that. And you can do that to Jerry Newman. In fact, his Twitter handle is, uh, what is it? At J-N-E-M-E-H-T-A. Uh, it happens to me all the time. And I'll be like, stop fucking tweeting at me. And hashtag, stop fucking tweeting at me. And... Uh, you take a meeting and um, you ask for, as an entrepreneur, you ask for advice. You know, you say, this is what I want to do and uh, I'm going to meet with you once a quarter, whatever it is, and I want your advice. And eventually, um, as an entrepreneur, you can put that potential investor, if you're impressed by them, on some sort of a mailing list, uh, you know, formal or informal, every week, every two weeks, every month, you send them an update on the progress of your company. And eventually, if you're doing well, progress goes up, and this person's like, wow, this is great. You're taking my advice, and your company's doing great. And you want that person to turn around and say, hey, I'd like to invest. Right? And I think there's a couple key points here, though, to point out. One is, ask for advice because you want advice. I can always tell people who've gotten that advice who don't actually want my advice, right? They'll come and they'll say, oh, I'm looking for your advice. But they then they don't listen to me at all. They just talk, right? So don't, don't do it because that, you think that's the way they're going to give you money, right? So it's not a game. Um, but it is true that at the early stage, when I invest in companies, it has to be a great team and it has to be a great idea both, right? It's not one or the other. But it is the team, right? Because I know the idea is going to change. I know the, the company is going to change from when I invest to where, whenever they get to wherever they're going. 
that a team has to be great. And the way you get to know it's a great team is by getting to know the team. So it's not something where you come in, you present once, and I'm going to be like, oh, all right, well, you're obviously a great team. How would I know that in one meeting? So getting to know people over time is definitely, definitely works. But be, you know, be honest, right? So from when someone approaches you, whether it's the first or the hundredth tweet or the first meeting until you actually decide to invest, what does that look like and as a timeline? I actually block people who tweet at me. I'll stop Sorry, tweeting just, at you, Jerry. No, no, Sorry. people who tweet at me, right? Because <laughs> somebody will tweet at me like, hey, you know, I've got this great company I'd like to talk to you, and I'll go look at their, tw their, their yeah. tweet stream, and it'll be like, they just tweeted that to 300 people. And I was like, okay, well, obviously you don't care about like, me or yeah. what I can offer. Right. You only just want my money, right? right? Um, which is understandable, but it's, it's still insulting. Yeah, <laughs> at least if you're going to tweet to 300 people, then tweet, wait five minutes, and delete the tweet <laughs> so that it doesn't show up on your timeline. Pro tip. Pro, you didn't know you'd get some pro <laughs> investor tips on tweeting tonight. We got them. We got them. But, um, but the, the flip side also is that I talk to angels all the time, people who yeah. are trying to become angels, who were lawyers or, what, or are lawyers, and somebody, a lot of them want to do it because it's more interesting than their day yeah. job. And the question they always ask me is, how do I find companies to invest in? Like, how, how do you get, how do you invest in, how do you find these yeah. great companies to invest in? And I say, well, because I've been doing it for 20 years, right? That's, but which is not helpful to them. But they are looking as hard for you as you are for mm -hmm. them. Right. So don't think it's, you know, it's not impossible. Um, and then the flip side of that is when I started my company 10 years ago, I pitched 80 people before I got my first investment. So it also, it, it's not easy to find the right person to, who believes in you. Well, when you Although it, it was a really bad idea, so 80 was kind of <laughs> high. <laughs> no, it wasn't the person who, who pitching. Was the guy? Who was the person? Who <laughs> was that? <laughs> We're shaming them on it. Insight, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> that was me. I invested in that company. Um. No, I want to go back to two things you raised, um, Nihal, because um, I've had this discussion with entrepreneurs. Okay, so we do have AngelList. Are we finding deals? Are you guys searching deals on AngelList? Or when's the timing for an entrepreneur to go on AngelList? Because you also hear the when's the right time to tell people you're raising money? And are you out there publicly with a billboard that says I'm raising money? And unlike the debt clock, there's no numbers like going up that you've actually raised. Um, so sort of thoughts on sort of publicly posting yeah. um, and when you think crowdfunding's a good idea. I'm not a big fan of the public posting. I like the more segmented approach. I think in the same way that investors are looking for entrepreneurs that fit their criteria, I think as an entrepreneur, you want to be looking for an investor that fits your criteria. So who can help you? Who's invested in a similar company before? You know, why would this person want to invest in you versus all the other things that are out there? So I think being segmented in your approach and thinking, look, what is it about my business that appealed to this person? Is there a, a connection there in some way? I think that's a better return on your, on your time uh, versus, uh, versus just kind of going willy-nilly. Uh, I think it's, as far as crowdfunding, uh, I think for specific companies, that's, that's, that's valuable. I think for companies, that, uh, consumer products companies that are trying to build a little bit of buzz, uh, want to fund initial product development, I think crowdfunding could be pretty successful. I have a couple of friends who have done that. But I think it's a particular type of company that really fits that, that model. Thoughts? Yeah, I think uh, in terms of public postings, as an entrepreneur, you know, I don't think people should be worried about uh, competition. You know, it's... It's it's that's not what it's about. It's about you know what do they say? It's one percent inspiration, ninety nine percent perspiration, right? And um, 
I don't know, I come from the school that it's okay to, obviously you don't want to give away IP and trade secrets, but it's okay to, to have a lot of exposure to what your company is doing because you don't know, you know who's going to connect out there, right? So I'm a fan of posting on AngelList. I think as an investor, um, you know, you want to make sure, like, when a company posts itself on AngelList and they don't have any traction and they're like, zero dollars raised and zero investors and like here's my picture and here's my bot then you're like eh, you know it's like oh they went to angel list because they had no other options um versus going to angel list when you have nine hundred fifty thousand of a million raised and you have all these investors with great references and you're like hey i'm just putting it out there publicly because i'm just looking to fill this up quickly i think then angel list is extremely effective We've seen a lot of companies just get over the hump or just get oversubscribed um, and also get that exposure, that public exposure right before they close the round and then announce it on, you know, through media. So I think there's there's good good ways, good and bad ways to use AngelList. Yeah. I think it's good. I mean, I, I think you can't put your listing up and then wait for people to come to you, right? The idea is you put your listing up and then you figure out which people to put yourself in front of and you email them. And, uh, you know, people do that. I People do that to me every day on AngelList. I get emails from AngelList saying, so-and-so is interested in talking to you. And they're usually actually pretty well targeted uh, because I've filled out my profile on AngelList and people can see it and know what I'm interested in. So that, I actually think it's a pretty useful tool. Um, on the other hand, and this is, uh, probably shouldn't say this, but it doesn't matter. I would never invest through AngelList, right? Because I don't want to be the one investor out of 20,000 who thought it was a good idea, right? There's, <laughs> Like, everybody else hated it, and I'm the only person who invested? Like, what's, why? Um, yeah. All of my investments come through my network. People, call, people email me and say, hey, I saw this great company. Do you want to look at it? And, you know, sometimes I say yes, and, and I do. But they're all vetted before they get to me. Otherwise, I just, I mean, there's, how many companies are there on AngelList? There's like 27 million, right? I mean, you, you just, every day. So you can't look at them all. Um, you need to have some filter for the most part. Uh, but I think, but there's also, I think, 20,000 investors on AngelList. Right. So if you go on AngelList and you look for people who actually fit your profile and you think that this person actually would be interested in what I'm doing, then they might actually respond to you. I think there's a good, good chance they'd respond to you. Don't just blanket email it, though. Yeah, so it's that research and are they going to be interested and, you know, but you also hit the right point in terms of the network. Um, for entrepreneurs, let's just hit on those new angels. You know, some of it is smart money, um, and some of it's not so smart. Less experience or less understanding, maybe they've got the Instagram fever, that kind of thing. What would you advise an entrepreneur who is going out and where they're getting the most interest from is, you know, new, new, new angels and not new angels who are coming from, you know, what, we're cutting you some slack there, Namdi. I think you need to find people who've made investments that you respect. Right. I mean, there's a lot. A lot of the new angels will say, "Oh, look, Instagram just got bought. Let's do photo sharing." And that's all right. Well, yeah, but Instagram was started three years ago, right? And it's a very crowded market now. It's too late to invest in that. Um, you need to look for people who are doing things where they they recently invested in something where you said, "Wow, that's actually that's a really interesting idea." Or what the heck? It's even better, right? Yeah. <laughs> but my favorite investment are the ones where I tell other investors, "They're like, what the hell are you thinking?" There's Jerry going crazy again, investing in something no one uh, understands. Those are, the, those are the ones I've made money on. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's probably right. <laughs> those are the ones we're looking for. All right, Cynthia's sitting there in the second row, and I know she's going to have a question. So you know, 
Hi, everybody. So I'd like to actually ask um, about, we've heard a little bit, Namdi mentioned a little bit about investing in diverse entrepreneurs. And then Nihal said, kind of, AngelList is awesome if you're, you need 50,000 of a million dollar raise. And so I guess my question is, if you are sort of an uncommon entrepreneur, either you're older or you're female or you're a person of color or you represent diversity in some other way, A, is AngelList for you? Um, and B, if not, you know, what's a really good way to sort of break through the um, stereotypical startup founder mold? You know, Stanford, 27-year-old dude who started coding when he was, what was Paul Graham's comment? When he before, was, before 14. Before 14, right. So if you're not that, if you don't fit that mold, I'd love to hear from each of you um, as far as how you think entrepreneurs can effectively break out. When, you, when, you, when the, you know, the investors or the VCs aren't the enlightened males you know, that clearly I have in front of me. I, I fit that mold perfectly. <laughs> I was a horrible entrepreneur. <laughs> but you fit the white dude model. Right. Well, I did. I was like a white dude, went to Columbia, started programming when I was 10. Oh, yeah. But I was Wait, a horrible entrepreneur. Check, I'm like the total check. counterexample there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I've always felt that entrepreneurship is a true meritocracy. And it just really depends, you know, where you want to put your energy and your effort. Like, I've seen so many great entrepreneurs who don't have that, the network, the Silicon Valley network, the Stanford network, the old boys network, whatever it is. They have a great idea. They have conviction. Um, they can't raise money. So you know what? They, they get on Indiegogo. And all of a sudden, right, <coughs> this thing takes off like wildfire. Um, they have no Twitter followers. And still, uh, this product just rises to the top. I think it's all about finding those particular you know, um, those channels. And, and there's one for everybody. And I think that, you know, that the best products always get Get, get noticed somehow. Uh, I've gotten frustrated being in New York trying to raise money and, uh, and not being, you know, having access to Sand Hill Road or having access to that network. But I think persistence and tenacity um, really does tend to overcome a lot of those challenges. I, I don't think it's a meritocracy. I, I think the product oh, yes! marketplace is a meritocracy. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I... I don't, I mean, so I have been doing this a long time, and, and part of what I do when I do this is I think about the people I've backed who've been successful, because nobody knows what makes somebody successful. Nobody knows what makes somebody a good entrepreneur, and you can go on the internet and search that, and you'll find 100 million web pages saying, this is what a successful entrepreneur, what their personality characteristics are, and I can give you a counterexample to any one of those 100 million pages. It, it's just nobody knows, right? It's not known. And what venture capitalists do is they look at the people they've funded in the past who were successful and say, I want to look for more of those, right? So it's not that it's a, it's not that they're looking for bias, it's just that they have bias. And, and I think if you don't fit that mold, you need to work a lot harder to get them to understand that you are somebody they should be investing in. And I mean, that's, I mean it's just the truth. I, I've invested in, in a few female founders and the ones I've invested in have been extremely impressive. And I think all of the people I've invested in have been extremely impressive. But, uh, you know, the women, it's, they have also been extremely impressive. And they've worked hard at it. You know, the counterpoint to that is if you look at folks that are now running billion dollar or have created billion dollar businesses in this era, you look at Evan Williams, you look at Jack Dorsey. These are anomalies. These are not the kids that grew up in Silicon Valley that went to Stanford. 
This is a kid in Nebraska, you know, who came from a blue-collar family who moved to San Francisco to start coding. This is a kid that moved from, you know, St. Louis, uh, who again w was coding on some like weird taxi program, and he's now, you know, just did a five billion dollar second offering at Square. Uh, I think it's a different generation. I think in 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 that light, you know, these these kids. Uh, I don't know. I think I think there's a lot more opportunity out there for for that type of persistence and tenacity. Well, so I also think when you look at the diversity of who's investing yeah. now, because we have different perspectives yeah. on the world um, and have come from different life experiences, yeah. have you know I want to say um, strong female partners um, who you know. I mean, heaven forbid, I, you know what? I'd love for you to be able to say, yes, you know what? Let me get Reshma's opinion on this. But if you yeah. actually use that as your knee-jerk reaction for any female founder, I think she would probably break your neck. So, you know. <laughs> um, but anyway. Yeah, no, I, I think it's an interesting issue. I, I do think pattern matching does exist. I think it, at the early stage, I think it exists a lot because, again, you, I think a lot of investors look for those patterns. And it, not to say that there's one size fits all, but the Stanford dropout who's technical, who starts a... Uh, you know, sexy company that will get funded more often than not. I think, I think there are a couple of things. I think I'm a fan of the quote that markets in the long term, in the short term, they're voting machines, but in the long term, they're weighing machines. So I think to, to Nahal's point, if you're extremely persistent and you continue to work on your business, eventually you may get to the point where you're successful. But I think it's easier for certain people than others. So I think the question is, how do investors maybe break out of some of those pattern matching ideas and think about? Is, are there entrepreneurs that don't fit the mold that can build great companies? So having a little bit of a broader sense of who could be an entrepreneur, I think, is a good way to start. Of course, you want to look for the product market fit and the big, the big market, but I think you really want to think about, does somebody have to look like that individual, at least on the outside, to build a great business? I think you don't. I think, it, I think there's a much broader set of entrepreneurs that are out there who can build great businesses. Just a matter of thinking at, looking at things from a, a broader lens. So I just get concerned when I am entrepreneurs and they say, but Kelly, you're like our perfect customer. And I'm like, oh, God, this is for sure going to fail. Like, I do not <laughs> want to sell. Like, anyone who wants to sell to me, like, forget it. Not going to happen. Um, more questions. Someone's going to have more questions than Cynthia. And the men are being quiet tonight. Women getting the hands up first. We like this. Hello. Um, my question is related to e-commerce. I'm curious what you're seeing in terms of like innovative trends out there because it's the fastest growing segment in retail. And is it more about using the existing media like Facebook, um, Twitter that you talk about, Instagram to connect better with your customer? Or is there new ways that you're seeing that could connect retail companies with customers? I don't know um, my fashion tech investors here tonight. But. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I think I look at it more from what's the nature of the business model and is it is there an improvement over existing solutions via the web? So I can cite two companies that I've invested in that are in the e-commerce space. Uh, one is, I mentioned Abbey Post, which is taking looking at a different market with a different approach. It's a made-to-measure approach. It's a, They have a fit, fit technology, which they license, which enables them to kind of get a much better sense of sizing. So that's partly how they approach to the, the market. Uh, it's probably that they're going after the market at all. Uh, another business I'd mention is Keaton Rowe, which is a combination. It's a personal styling service for women, which leverages a stylist who basically is kind of the, the touch point for the customer. And she basically acts as the person who creates a curated lookbook and retains the customer over time. So that's a 
hybrid model where you're utilizing the online sales channel with a, a more personalized touch. So I think it's a combination of what's the business model and there's there something that the e-commerce angle provides that you can't get through a physical experience. Um, not necessarily, I think how you market it is an independent question. I think it's more, is the business model solving a problem and is there something that the online aspect does that improves the status quo? We, uh, we have a company called Boxed, B-O-X-E-D, and uh, they decided, Exinga Kids, and here in New York, they decided to do a, uh, a mobile-first commerce play, and it's all bulk goods ordering, so it's like a, the Costco or the Sam's Club model, and they really chose mobile-first because that distribution was wide open. That You mentioned e-commerce, but mobile commerce, especially with an iPad-first app, leveraging all the acquisition tactics just specific to mobile, uh, was wide open. And they're doing extraordinarily well because they don't have a website. It's just, you know, it's just on iOS. Um, so that's something else to consider. I, I feel like there's so much, so many distribution opportunities in that market is, there's so much greenfield in mobile-only. Not just mobile-first, but mobile-only commerce. I wonder if we're just gonna call it commerce. E-commerce, M-commerce, you know, all the rest of it. When is it just going to be commerce? That could be another discussion. Um, final takeaway? You're like, oh, Kelly, we're n <laughs> you can have that discussion by yourself, I, I, I all you like. I thought it was a funny question to ask in the Apple store. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that is actually going to be a discussion we have uh, in, a, in a couple of months in, in terms of, um, retail and commerce and online and offline and things that you thought startups did that now, you know, big companies, established companies and, and luxury brands are doing, um, you know, in terms of generating that interest in the products. Um, final thoughts or takeaways for uh, any of the entrepreneurs who are, I want to say, here in the audience, but also listening and watching on iTunes. Yeah, I was just going to say, we spent a lot of time talking about entrepreneurs and how um, you know, obviously the landscape is, is changing and, and, and for entrepreneurs, but I think a lot of the disruption is going to happen on the venture side. Um, I was um, in, uh, in Utah at Summit Series this past weekend and I was speaking to a few VCs who said, listen, wouldn't it be cool if an entrepreneur asked us for like docs for, for their diligence? Like show me your general partner agreement you know, tell me where you are in the hierarchy. Are you a decision maker? Like, how many times does your partnership meet? Uh, is it unanimous vote? Is it majority vote, right? Can you just give me that data dump? And I think that needs to happen. I think now um, the tables are turning a little bit. And I think the, 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 the investors that really get it, that are embracing that disruption, folks like Andreessen Horowitz, folks that are, I think are gonna take the next generation of investing to the next level, you know, we're starting to are starting to get there. So I think it's going to be fun next kind of five, ten years of investing. It's going to be very different than it has been traditionally. In terms of traditional VC with LPs and how they've raised money, but also how entrepreneurs should the, be the, interacting the, with them. The transparency and the process, and that's right. Well, I think this is something that people have always talked about, which is you're not taking money from a firm. You're taking money from a person, right? So... It's not the, it doesn't matter if it's Sequoia or Andreas and Horowitz, it, it matters which partner it is. And you should know them as well as they feel like they should know you because it is, if it's a 10 year life for your company, that person's gonna be sitting at the table with you every month for 10 years. 
Right? Oh, if you don't God. like them, that's, it's just, there's no, please don't do it. I mean, it's going to be torture for you. <laughs> <laughs> no matter how much money you make, it's, don't do it. It will be torture. <laughs> Namdi? Um, I think I would just say there's a tendency to want to raise capital very early. Uh, but I would say if you do build a business to the point where you're able to not raise capital early and bootstrap it and get to the point where you're a later stage or growth stage and you haven't raised money, that's the best case scenario, right? right. Because you haven't taken the dilution. You know, your investors will want to get into your business. They'll pound down your door to get in. So I would just say, you know, a lot of the good companies don't necessarily raise money early. So if you can get around it and continue to build your business the way you want to, you have a lot more autonomy too. It's a one way to look at it. So I don't Always know. Keep, your, keep, your, keep an open mind. And if you, have, if you aren't able to raise a round early, that's not the worst thing in the world. Just one more thing. Have the metrics changed from what you expect to see from an early stage company? Jerry just nods. Yeah. Well, I think absolutely. And, yeah, and I, as it's shifted in the last... 12 months, 24 months? I think it's shifted more at the Series A level um, than it has at the seed level. The seed level, I think people aren't investing when it's, you know, two, two people in an idea anymore. Um, they actually want you to have built a product. Um, the seed level is starting to get to where the Series A level used to be, which is we want a product and we actually want people using it and not necessarily paying for it, but using it. Um, and the Series A level now, it's where the Series B used to be, which is we actually want you to have commercial traction. Um, where Series A, used, Series A, when I started, was the first round, and you would give people money with an idea because they couldn't possibly have built anything yet without the money. Right. Um, so it, it has changed quite a bit. Even in the past year, it's changed quite a bit. Good stuff. Thank you, gentlemen, for making yourselves available on this very cold New York evening to be here and answer questions. Greatly appreciated. And thank you to everyone in the audience who came out this evening, and to Apple, as always, for being great conveners and hosts. We'll see you next month. <laughs>